This is the London FinTech Podcast, brought to you by your host, Mike Ballaman, bridging the worlds of suits and t-shirts, of finance and technology, bringing you insights, stories, and inspiration from the golden age of opportunity and innovation happening in London right now. Hi, this is Mike Ballaman, and this is the London FinTech Podcast, episode 212 brought to you in association with Smart and TheEnlistedBoard.com. And I'm delighted to be joined today, Benga Ajayi, partner and head of Africa at QED Investors, to talk about fintech in Africa. In a previous episode, LFP 210, we discussed fintech savings and investment in Nigeria. Now we zoom out to the bigger picture of the whole of Africa. As we discussed in LFP 210, in this insane modern world, a Martian reading Twitter will probably only see the most simplistic perspectives on Africa per se. Whereas, in reality, Africa is a continent, not a place, with a billion people over 50 countries, many slash most of which have fractal complexity. As we touched on with Nigeria, not only does it have the three major tribes, Yoruba, Igbo, and Hausa, but an astonishing further 180 tribes and languages. And that's just one country. Still some 50 countries to go to cover a full map. The other factor that the Martian won't have to wait long to see on Twitter is an emphasis on colonialism. Again, as if colonialism was one thing. In reality, there's an astonishing spectrum between, say, King Leopold of Belgium's insanely cruel rule in the Congo to, on the other hand, the British and their West African squadron devoting considerable resources to the eventual abolition of the slave trade in the 19th century. Again, back to the fractal nature of complex topics. Using colonialism as one word, again, covers up more than it reveals. The British Empire alone was not a thing, but was a collection of dominions, colonies, protectorates, mandates, and other territories, and the difference between these were quite huge. The other random factoid I happened across recently, which was a surprise to me, shows what a blip European powers actually were. Their direct involvement in Africa was by the late 19th century, a mere 10% of the continent under European control, Whereas, after the so-called scramble for Africa, by 1914, European powers controlled 90%. Half a century later, and roughly all the powers had packed up and gone home. A Martian, who after some time had blocked all the woke and got on to deeper matters, might also find out that governance has remained a long-term challenge in Africa. But, with a little more research, he would soon find the Ibrahim African Governance Index, which shows a huge range of scores out of 100, from the likes of 19 or 20 from Somalia and South Sudan, to on the mainland, Botswana, Tunisia at 66 to 70. Again, huge complexity within a continent, admitting of no simple summary. But be that as it may, the same point remains. A vast part of the globe, with countless peoples, ranging from hunter-gatherers, I believe still, to Chinese-built railways, which are way faster than those in the UK. It is complex and widely misunderstood. So, let's tear everything up, but talking of greenism and insanity in the so-called West, let's not forget that at the heart of West's insane greenism is still some terrible exploitation of the continent. Greenism relies on cobalt and lithium, as we know. 60% of cobalt and lithium comes from the Democratic Republic of Congo, where unregulated mines use children as young as seven, who as miners breathe in the cobalt-laden dust that can cause fatal lung ailments. Sometimes I feel the world is going backwards, not forwards. Anyway, what do I know? Next to nothing, and most of that is wrong. Thus, it is with great pleasure that I have a real expert to help us understand some of the basic layout of fintech in Africa. Plenty to talk about, so let's get on with the show. 
Good morning, Benga. Thank you for joining me on the show today. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me. It's, it's great to be here. As I said, by complete coincidence, we're recording this on the 1st of September, which is the day that LFP210, Odun of Piggyvest, co-founder of Piggyvest, is released. She's a Nigerian like you. I'm starting to think that everybody's Nigerian. And as I mentioned, we covered a little bit about Nigeria at the time. Forgetting my waffly intro, you were born in Nigeria. So maybe just as a sort of chit-chat intro, you can give us a little bit of a feeling for what a Nigerian knows or thinks about the rest of Africa being a vast uh, continent. I mean, I was, uh, I'm a little older than you, perhaps. And when I was at uh, school, or well, certainly perhaps up to the age of 20, I knew next to nothing about the rest of Europe, right. uh, other than the French are bad and quite often the Germans are bad, and everything beyond that we knew, really knew very little about. So actually, I didn't know much about Europe as a whole, but uh, as I say, there, there's such a thing about pigeonholing all Africans uh, uh, as the same, which they're certainly not. So what did you know about Africa? So, so I think like, it's actually super interesting that most, I think, Africans uh, that you know, had the privilege of going to school have some sort of knowledge about Africa, and this is because... A lot of sort of like, you know, you talk there about sort of colonialism, right? So African liberalization from Europeans, for example, was fought mainly as a continent. And so you learn these things in school that there's a lot of other countries that are outside kind of where you are. Um, And so in general, people tend to be aware of sort of the African continent, other countries. You know, for example, Nelson Mandela in my own generation, everybody knows who that is and what country is from and, and, and why it's about. But I think it's only when you kind of really start to, in my generation, started to get older and travel around, do you really kind of see that even though there's a, little, a lot more other countries, there are huge similarities, but also huge differences, right? And the other interesting thing is, I think because of the age of the internet now, a lot of, you know, sort of African kids growing up have a lot more context about the rest of the continent than, you know, typically it would be uh, when we're growing. But let's also not forget, there's a lot of languages spoken and there's huge differences. Right? Nigeria, for example, borders um, French-speaking, and all of our neighbours uh, by land speak French and not English. Yes, exactly. So perhaps on that um, basis that uh, you're very fortunate to be speaking English, because not that many people speak French unless you want to go to France, of course. And uh, again, going back to things like English and French and, and all that kind of stuff, one of the things I don't think I've ever seen mentioned in my life was that for example, Nigeria, being part of the empire at the time, provided troops in the First World War, um, but also notably in the Second World War. Yes. Lots of Nigerians fought in India and, and Burma yes. uh, against the, the Japanese. Um, and I've never once seen those poor souls, who many of whom lost their lives, credited for the fight against uh, global fascism uh, at the time. And uh, going back to history, it's two things we've easily forgotten. That the only country to oppose Hitler for two years was Britain, while America bled us dry and, and bankrupted us. But not just that. If it had been Britain alone, we'd have been stuffed. It was Britain and the empire. Right. And I think there was a book came out last year about the Indian army uh, in Burma, which was really interesting. And a couple of my uh, Indian slash Bangladeshi chums were really interested to read about it because, again, plenty of Indians fought in a terrible, terrible war, and they're forgotten about. Yeah. In this sort of, oh, it's either Britain good or bad, and it's you know, India good or bad. Yeah. The actual reality, when you zoom in, beneath all this fractal complexity, uh, is, is way, way more, more complex. Absolutely. I think like, it's a really uh, uh, interesting thing that you point out, that indeed what is known as modern-day Nigeria in the First World War, in fact, it was uh, a collection of, sort of you know, different sort of, you know, parts of the colony, uh, were actually you know, part of the British Empire. And as you said, they fought in World Wars. They were subject directly to the king's orders and part of the empire. Um, and so it was even before Nigeria as a country, as we know it, was formed today. 
Uh, it's a really important part of sort of African history, actually. Yes, totally, totally. And I mean, just on a, on a small level, I was very interested this morning coming in knowing nothing, uh, literally, and I'm not being modest. I had a quick look at Sir Frederick Lugard's yes. British rule in tropical Africa, some 600 odd pages. And he was the, the chap, if listeners don't know, who unified the Northern Protectorate, the Southern Protectorate and the colony of Lagos into yes. Nigeria. Yes. Uh, and it was his wife who came up with the, the name Nigeria. I think it's yes. quite a good name, actually. Exactly. It was uh, named the Niger area. And it, uh, Niger, it's a joke that it wasn't actually his wife, but his girlfriend. If you will. Oh, I see. Ah. They said, this is the Niger area, the, one of the longest rivers in Africa is the Niger River uh, that runs through Nigeria and Niger and, and neighboring countries. And she said, well, this is the Niger area, and that's how Nigeria came about. Ah, okay. So I think we've got, uh, uh, you know, Mrs. Lugard, I think, or whoever she was, to thank for that. Lady Lugard or the mistress. Well, again, going back to the fractal complexity, reality is always more interesting than any uh, story. And just reading a little bit about it, well, there's two things. One of which is that these figures who all get sort of painted under the same brush, oh, they were all colonials, they're all bad. Well, actually, he was very much in favour of indirect rule. So, for example, especially in the Northern Protectorate, all the local chieftains were left in place and they reported to a, sort of the Brits on, on, on this and that and, and not much else. And actually, in terms of modern criticism, I have actually seen criticism by, by Africans. I watched a, a YouTube the other day. Well, it's the British's fault because they shouldn't have had indirect rule if they'd gone there and, you know, done the same as they did in the South. South and maybe the history would be different, but anyway, it's all right by the Bible. But anyway, he was in favour of indirect rule. He was in favour of Africans playing an increasing role in the governance. But just on a small snippet there, he walked from Mombasa uh, on the East Coast uh, of Kenya to Uganda, which was quite a long walk. And along the way, going back to the complexities of human beings rather than the caricatures, um, he became um, a blood brother with various kings and chieftains. <laughs> so, what a walk. You go along there and you're sort of busy sort of cutting your fingers and, and becoming blood brothers with um, everyone. And then the other, the other thing which stuck in my mind is very, very relevant, very, very relevant to the globalism today, which is that um, in this book he wrote in 1926 uh, about British rule, and like the average Brit, he was pretty self-critical. He was making the point that a century ago, it was the Labour Party in this country who were really starting the narrative that, oh, it's all about capitalism and exploiting the natives and it's costing too much and all this kind of stuff. And he, and he said, interestingly, this is a century ago, he said that the Labour Party were pushing the view that the world should be run by committees. Where are we today? We've got the United Nations, we have the <laughs> World Economic Forum, right. uh, we have the WHO, which we're all very grateful to Africa for managing to veto at the UN that the WHO will take over any future pandemic. Speaking of WHO, and the, the uh, uh, president of WHO is actually African as well, uh, from Ethiopia. Yes, a former, former communist guerrilla, well, big friend of China. Yes, well... Who covered up a couple of cholera epidemics or something like that. Yeah, I mean, there's all these allegations but I think it's interesting uh, in general if you look at sort of the 21st century and the contribution of sort of African talent and sort of Africans on the global stage and, and that's, actually, that's actually very interesting as well. Oh totally, well I mean I'm, I'm not joking in the slightest and I think I posted on LinkedIn about this. There was this globalist plan and Europe is under the globalist boot. Right. Uh, we are entirely thankful to Africa, sub-Saharan Africa I think, for saying bollocks to that and vetoing it. Otherwise, the WHO would be in complete control of the next pandemic. Anyway, the politics of that um, are, are all sort of as it may be, but um, I think the, the big picture thing for me, which is that I think the risks for Africa as a continent, certainly for sub-Saharan Africa, are very great right now, greater than they've been for a long time. I can only see what's happening now as the end of the American empire, and it's imploding, Europe is sinking, and Africa is in a situation where you've got China... <laughs> Chinese money coming in, building railways, uh, stuff like that. I saw something recently on Redacted uh, about how America was going the ground, the State Department, 
uh, bullying various uh, African leaders to try and get them into line over, over Russia and Ukraine, or else, was the, the quote, or else you better do what we say. So really tricky times. Anyway, let's put all that politics to one side. I think the main thing I wanted to get out of that was the, that, that this is a very complex place. I know nothing. So uh, very briefly, Benga, maybe tell, tell listeners a little bit about your career journey so they know where you're coming from. I mean, one of the things that I happen to note on LinkedIn was you have six years at a, at a company called Google, who I used to use for search, actually, back in the day before I became a sort of a, a dissident. But uh, anyway, yes, I still heard of them. <laughs> well, that's an interesting place to start. Yes, I did spend six years at a company called Google and actually, in fact, did what work on sort of Google search. One of my roles while I was there was actually to help localize and make Google search much better in Nigeria and South Africa and some of the African countries um, like the way it is in, 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 in Europe. So, you know, my career is actually one of those ones that's like really interesting. I think it's probably divided into three. So I have sort of like a tech background. As you said, I spent a ton of time at Google. I think one of the interesting things there was I joined when a lot of digitization waves started to happen. Right. I think, you know, for the period I was there, we saw mobile phones and smartphones usage kind of grow like something like, you know, seven or eight times. We saw YouTube views grow, you know, 12, 14, 15 times. So it's a really interesting time as a lot of Africans were starting to come online and starting to actually engage with services. And I think it forms the basis for a lot of what fintech founders today are actually like innovating on, on, on top of that. After Google, I spent uh, some time in sort of fintech in London. So sort of familiar names like Revolut and TransferWise, you know, working in product roles there and partnership roles there. The fascinating thing for me was like to see a market like the UK or a market like Europe that, as far as I was concerned, compared to Africa, had all the financial needs that it did. And yet there was opportunities for, you know, all of these companies that we've just discussed to actually come up with better, faster products, cheaper products, and much more sort of, you know, tailored and custom products. And I think that kind of naturally led me to start to think a lot more about Africa and sort of what our chances were, what our role is in terms of actually closing the gap. As you well know, the gap in Africa for sort of, you know, fintech innovation and need is actually much, you know, much bigger, I would say. And so I started to think about that very, very carefully. Was spending a lot of time with investors that invested in the companies I was working for, looking to invest in Africa. And naturally that led me to start to spend time with VCs and founders on the continent about thinking of how to build good fintech companies. And through all of that, I found myself at QED. QED, as you know, is sort of, you know, one of the world's preeminent global fintech investors. And so the ability to be able to bring the power of like investing in uh, fintech uh, uh, unicorns and sort of, you know, great product experiences around the world to Africa was uh, too good to pass up. Yes, and I think I flogged, flogged the donkey well, well beyond it being dead on the fact that it's a, a complex place. But even from an investment perspective, narratives, if I think back 25 years, say, to the 1990s, on Africa and then China, actually, um, were very similar at the time, which is, this is the great future. We've got to have an Africa fund. We've got to have a China fund. And so lots of these things were launched on the basis, and this is going back a long way, on the basis that this is the future, and most of them failed to realise very much. So yeah, it, it's not as simple from an investment perspective as, oh, just chuck money at Africa, any, any of these 50 countries, because it's all wonderful. It's like a casino. Goodness knows which will win. I'll put some on 36 and I'll put some on number 48. So <laughs> yeah. that's one extreme. And then the, uh, the other extreme from an investment perspective, I mean, getting back to models being wrong, whether it's COVID or the climate. I think it was something like, wasn't it, about 20 years ago? I was seeing stuff which worried me, which is like, oh, God, the whole of sub-Saharan Africa is going to die of AIDS or something like that. There were all these projections. And now you see projections that come 2030, 42% of the world's youth will be in, in Africa. So it's just crazy projections into the future. So speaking as a professional investor, going on to the main course then, about how on earth one approaches Africa from a fintech 
perspective, from an investment perspective. Maybe you'll give us some little background from a sort of more investment focus. Right. Breaking down this one place, yes. this one continent called Africa, into different regions, into different areas, and then we'll go on to five particular markets that you at QED focus on. But, but just set the context in the first place. Right. Let's say a listener is going to do a fund in Africa or a fintech fund in Africa. Where on earth do they start with their spreadsheet, which has got 54, 55, I can't remember, rows with the names of all the countries down the left? Yes. What does it need to start doing in the columns? And, and how do you reduce the crazy complexity of, say, 50-odd to five countries that you're going to focus on? Yeah, so diff, the difference is a really, really good uh, uh, place to start, Mike. So as you rightly said, there's 54 countries in Africa, right? So you almost could think of having sort of 54 different funds or 54 different strategies. And there's a lot of complexity within those 54 countries, different languages, 54 different, you know, maybe 50 different regulatory landscapes. You know, these are all very, very different from each other. But sort of like, I think there's, there's two ways that you could think of something like fintech or innovation. So one point there to start is 70% of Africa's GDP is focused in 11 key markets, right? So, you know, one of the ways to think about that, and these markets are sort of the obvious ones, you know, Nigeria, Kenya, Egypt, South Africa, you know, Cote d'Ivoire, Uganda, Morocco, this country, Senegal, these countries. Now, one way to think about it would be to say, I want to focus on where a lot of like sort of, you know, as it were, sort of the GDP or the money is and think about sort of the inefficiencies that exist in those markets. Right? So if you go to each of those markets, you can break the inefficiencies from a fintech standpoint. Something like payment or payment rails, for example, you can't just paint a broad sweep and say, you know, I want to invest in payments or payments needs to be digitized in Africa. Because, well, in Kenya, about 75% of all payments are actually uh, are digitized, more so than the UK. If you go to Nigeria or Egypt, that number is closer to sort of like 15%. So you really have to kind of start from like trying to break these countries down depending on sort of the, you know, whatever criteria you're thinking about, and start to look at the different landscapes, the different consumer behaviours, and really start to go deep. Right, OK, so that's interesting, and it picks up a little bit uh, of where we ended up with uh, Odon and, and, and Piggyverse, which is that once they've done incredibly well in their uh, addressable sub-market of Nigeria, where do they go? Do they go somewhere else in Africa? Do they go to Mexico? It's a million-dollar question, yes, yes. Or actually, given they were doing a raise, presumably more than a million-dollar question. I think it's a billion-dollar question for Odon and some other startups. <laughs> that's a very big uh, raise if they're doing a billion raise. I shall definitely, even I will notice that one in, in the press. So, by definition, from a kind of mainstream investment perspective, you've got to go with the GNPs. I mean, there's, there's just another, just in passing, there's another argument which says, oh, and we'll stick 5 or 10% of our fund in countries outside that. Yes. Because the upside from sort of it, it, these countries that are 19 or 20 governance out of 100, although they tend to have civil wars, which doesn't really help, yes. uh, is, is a hell of a lot. Yes. If you, for the sake of argument, I don't know, let's say you invest in US fintech. Well, actually, it's been quite high already. Actually. Yes. So before we dive into your five main areas, in terms of your day job, do you literally just focus on these five, which you can explain, or do you sort of mainly focus on the five and then you put some sort of, you know, higher odds bets, unquotes, elsewhere? Yeah, that's a really good question. So sort of like the, to kind of, you know, touch on the five main markets we're focused on here. So we think of Egypt in North Africa, um, Nigeria in West Africa. Uh, South Africa and Southern Africa, Kenya in East Africa, and we um, like to think of sort of the Francophone Africa as a basket of countries, uh, partly because they all speak French and, and they have the same currency, which there's no, uh, nowhere else on the continent has that. And so those are the main sort of like five sort of markets that we spend time with, that we spend time in. The reason for this, as you rightly mentioned, is the fact that these countries are some of the biggest um, economies. They're sort of what I call fintech ready, right? If you think of sort of digitization is on the rise, uh, there's regulatory awareness, and probably more importantly, there's a lack of service from incumbents, 
right, in, in these markets, and you can start to build things. So we focus on these markets, but another interesting thing is these markets are, as, are gateways to the rest of their regions. I see. Right? So, you know, you focus on Kenya, and you can use Kenya to kind of get into, say, Uganda and Tanzania and Rwanda. You can use Nigeria to maybe anchor on Ghana and South Africa to anchor on sort of the rest of um, uh, uh, the rest of the Southern African continent. Interestingly, Egypt is actually part of the MENA region, which is the Middle East and North Africa. So not just sort of like expanding to neighboring other African countries, but actually even upwards uh, or sideways, if you will, to some of the Arab countries. So that's the way that we kind of look at these markets and spend time in the markets. You're right that the focus is not to only think of those markets and ignore the smaller markets. We're quite opportunistic in those markets, but these are the key anchor markets that we kind of use to get an understanding of what's going on. And talking of Africa being quite big, I mean, not very good at geography, uh, even I know that some of those places are actually quite far apart. I mean, it takes quite a little while to fly from West Africa to East Africa or from yes. South Africa to, to North Africa. So there must just be, at a, a logistical level, quite a challenge for you in, in covering such a wide territory. It's not like you're just doing, I don't know, North Africa and you go, you go sort of left and right along the Mediterranean. No, no, you're right. I mean, it's quicker for me to fly from London to Cairo than from Lagos to um, Cape Town, right? So you're absolutely right. I think there's huge geographical complexity, and this is part of the, I think, the fun but yet complex nature of the job, which is all of these places are very far apart. So all those countries I talked about have very different regulatory environments. They have very different sort of composition of sort of, you know, fintech penetration, but also population. And so sometimes some of those innovations and, and, and companies don't actually even travel all the way. And so you sometimes need to, while you think of Africa broadly, you almost, not almost actually, you need to think local first within the continent. Like, what is the context of a South African company in South Africa? How well can they solve the problem there? And then to your point, what's the natural next markets to go? What are you seeing in Egypt? What are you seeing in Kenya? So, for example, in Nigeria, uh, one of the exciting things for the last five years is, you know, a drive to digitize payments, as I said, to get people to use some sort of electronic payments. And so you carry cash around, you carry sort of these debit cards that don't work, and you try to figure things out. That's the nature of the Nigerian sort of, you know, uh, you know, financial services payment space. If you go to Kenya, which is about sort of six hour flight away, you rarely see cash and everybody pays with their mobile phone. Right. So these are sort of like the things to kind of like, you know, you know, think about that are very, very different, not just geographically, but also consumer behavior. So why don't we start with Egypt, as you say, which sort of sometimes is quotes Middle East and, and sometimes is, is Africa. I have to say that in my immense ignorance, I know <laughs> absolutely nothing about, uh, well, about Egypt. I do know that it's got some pyramids and they were built quite a while ago and they haven't all fallen down yet, but that's about as far as it goes. So within uh, Egypt, maybe you'd like to give the listeners a little bit of a feel for sort of two or three or one or two key fintechs who are there and the kind of things that, that are happening in Egypt. Yeah, Egypt is a fascinating country. I think it's a sort of third largest uh, uh, country on the continent by population after Nigeria and Ethiopia. And it's about 100 million people. Now, one of the interesting things about that is 100 million people, depending on who you ask, is about 4 to 5 million SMEs. And about 90% of the transactions in that country is done by cash. And so without even kind of, you know, getting into some of the other things that we look about in terms of, you know, savings and credit, you already see such an interesting conundrum for digitizing sort of, you know, payments um, in Egypt. The regulator there, in my opinion, is actually one of the most sort of aware regulators. They already have a fintech playbook. They have a fintech regulatory sort of, you know, cover. And you're starting to find interesting companies that are trying to, you know, solve the very first bit of that, 
which is how do you digitize payments? So companies like Fowry um, trying to you know, you know, solve how people like pay uh, electronically. You have companies like Telda trying to help people to get to save and, 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 and do other things. And so it's a super interesting market. I think over the last four or five years especially, you've had a lot of really interesting companies across multiple verticals in that region starting to emerge. Right, okay, and then just going westwards to Francophone North Africa, on the sort of top left of Africa, what's sort of uh, the big things that's going on in that part of the world? Well, like, so markets like Morocco, for example, is, is super interesting. They're sort of, you know, traditional banking uh, countries, I think, uh, uh, there was a recent classification I saw from McKinsey, where, you know, they have a lot of banks and the banks they are relatively strong, but then there's a young and sort of urban population that is starting to emerge. And so there's the opportunity to actually digitize, you know, the, some of these services like banking and insurance, which in Morocco actually has a lot more higher penetration than, say, in Egypt or like the rest of Africa, right? And so that's some of the interesting things that we're seeing in markets like Morocco, where there's emergence of sort of digitization of existing services, as opposed to, let's say, in a place like Nigeria, where the services don't exist and you're trying to distribute them digitally for the first time. Just from a sort of uh, VC perspective, because it is sort of French-speaking and not too far away from France, actually, on the top left, do you find there is more VC competition there from sort of French VCs? So I actually think Africa is one of those interesting markets where the VC competition there is very global in nature. You know, you would not be surprised if I told you there's Japanese VCs in Nigeria and on the continent. And there's a lot of U.S. VC. I say this as I work for a U.S. VC. And there's lots of local funds. I think the nature of venture capital competition, especially in fintech on a continent, it's not very regional or, if you will, it's not tied to sort of the colonial sort of, sort of tracks. There's a lot of VC firms are starting to recognize the global opportunity that exists within fintech um, and they're investing globally. Uh, so I don't think it's necessarily French VCs and French markets, sort of English VCs in sort of, you know, Nigeria and Kenya, if you will. And, and you know, it's, it's very global with the sort of like, I think the obvious suspects, the American VCs um, really leading the charge here. And then you have a lot of players in Europe and in fact, the Far East coming to the fore as well. Well, I would never have guessed about the sort of the, the, the Japanese VCs. I didn't really know they sort of existed as such, let alone got out very much. I mean, certainly back in my days as a merchant banker in the 80s and, and 90s, Japanese were busy sort of buying up everything. And I, I thought they'd been sort of staying at home for quite a while. But just in, in passing, I mean, in terms of flows of money into the continent, obviously China is a, a major provider of money to the continent, a major builder of infrastructure. I think in part to secure this huge supply of, of minerals and, and such that's required for their um, uh, industries, which going back to the scramble for Africa, I think a century ago was one of the rationales for the sort of the Europeans getting down there after the uh, Industrial Revolution. But in terms of China, I assume that a lot of their money is kind of at a state level, like we'll build, build a, a new rail railway in East Africa and you can allow us to sort of you know, manage some mines or something like that and get deals on the lithium or, or something. And I wouldn't imagine, um, but again, I'm wrong about most things, that VCs, for example, are a big thing in, in China. So you mentioned Japanese VCs. Are the, are the Chinese VCs or no. is it literally state level? I think you're absolutely spot on there. A lot of the Chinese involvement in Africa is very much at the state level and is very much at the infrastructure level. You're absolutely right, you know, resources for providing infrastructure. And so when we talk about VCs from the Far East, it's mostly Japanese VCs that we've seen on the continent. I also think there's an interesting thing here that, you know, sort of, you're right, like, you know, Chinese VCs, you have US VCs going to China, but also I think the model of sort of Chinese 
um, innovation and, and the internet is slightly different to maybe like the US one. And you know, Africa is actually a bit more modeled after sort of like the US one. So we haven't quite seen sort of a lot of sort of Chinese VCs yet. Um, um, that could change. I think like, I think there's a role and space for all types of, of venture, all types of sort of money to come um, um, into Africa and for Africa companies to develop on top of that. I think the important thing here though, is that I don't necessarily see the VC space in a geopolitical way. I think sort of Africa tech companies and Africa fintech have mostly kind of broken that mold and are kind of trying to build global companies, or at least trying to build African companies that are modeled on global benchmarks. And so in that sense, like the ability to attract venture from whether it's a Latin America VC or a VC Satya in London, um, right next to us, Mike, or in the US, you know, very agnostic in that sense. Interesting. Okay, so just moving around the map, we're at the top left, so kind of the bottom left, uh, West Africa. We've mentioned Nigeria once or twice. In terms of West Africa, which are the other, just in passing, principal markets that are doing interesting things or there are interesting opportunities for fintech beyond Nigeria, and presumably to the left of Nigeria, left being, a, of course, a geographical term? Yeah, so I think Francophone West Africa is actually a very interesting part. So uh, by Francophone West Africa, we mean the countries in West Africa that speak French. Um, so you've got the sort of, uh, 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 sort of three big markets there, Cameroon, Cote d'Ivoire, and Senegal, and then you have a basket of other smaller countries. The interesting factor, the interesting thing about these markets is that they spend, they have one currency, which is the CEFA, it's called. So it's a bunch of, I think, it's about nine countries that have the same currency. And the regulatory landscape there, even though it's multiple country, tends to be very, very similar. So there's an opportunity for true regional players to emerge. One such company, for example, is a company called Wave, which is a mobile money technology company out of out of Senegal that is expanding across the whole of West Africa. So that's a very interesting market. And another market on the, on the, on the West side that is very interesting is Ghana. Ghana, as you know, is an English-speaking country like Nigeria, much smaller country. I think it's about sort of, you know, 10 to 20% of the size. But the fintech growth there is actually also quite phenomenal as well. So one interesting way to kind of think of some of the markets across Africa is if I look at like Ghana, in some ways there's more similarity in Ghana with Kenya than with Nigeria. Well, what do I mean? So this advent of mobile money, the idea that you can spend money in fiat on your mobile phone, not necessarily from sort of an app-based, but actually tied to your identity and your, and, your, and your sort of SIM card, if you will, rather than your device, is something that is quite prominent in Kenya, in Uganda, and in Ghana. That's not prominent in Nigeria. So for example, if you look at the payment space, I would group those countries together, and I would book Nigeria and Egypt together. So now you're starting to break like sort of like the, the traditional geographical foes, right? Then if you think of countries where banking penetration as a proportion of adults is very high, I would group South Africa and Morocco together, for example. So you start to see these things where the geographic location of these countries are important to understand some of sort of the trade corridors and sort of currencies and languages. But when it comes to investing, in fact, sometimes, you could have two or three countries in the same basket in different parts of the continent. Fascinating, and it's a good example of, I say, that uh, reality is always far more interesting than uh, any abstractions uh, one might, might make. And also that, as always, it really helps to find somebody who knows something to talk to. Because <laughs> yeah. by definition, they uh, uh, know something, I guess. Okay, so we've touched on East Africa via 
Kenya, South Africa. Many people have heard of South Africa. It's at the bottom for these people who don't know geography. Yeah, South Africa is a fascinating, uh, fascinating market. Like it's probably the market in Africa that looks most like, you know, like your OECD average, if you look at some of the numbers. So it looks very much like the UK in terms of, you know, credit penetration, insurance, you know, banking. Well, UK will be starting to look like South Africa in, in the winter with brownouts and all that kind of stuff, because they certainly have problems with electricity supply down there too, but for well, different reasons. Well, I can't tell you South Africa is a better place to be in the winter, but that's a separate conversation. Yeah, sure. <laughs> than in the UK, Mike. But look, the, the interesting thing about South Africa is like, it's one of those things where if you look at it from the very top, the numbers, if you think from a fintech standpoint or indeed from a macro standpoint, um, look very, very interesting. But if you go within the country, you start to realize it's a tale of two South Africans, if not three. Um, there's a part of South Africa that is heavily banked, heavily creditized, and has access to all of the sort of world leading, you know, payment rails, etc. Is at the bottom left? <laughs> the Cape. The Cape, and, and, and not just the Cape, but also just the demographic, if you will, within, within South Africa. And then there's another South Africa that is kind of almost excluded from sort of that lack of thing. That, 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 so if you, if you think of, say, again, if you go back to Nigeria, Egypt, what the fintechs they are trying to do is to create new companies and new products and new services for people who've never had them before at all. And they're trying to do that by connecting them to what's happening elsewhere in the world, right? So lots of Egyptians will get their first cards only in the next you know, you know, five years. Lots of Nigerians got their first cards only in the last five years. If you think of South Africa, for example, a lot of what's happening is trying to connect some part of South Africa to the other part of South Africa. So it's a very, very interesting market. And, you know, there's you know, a couple of companies that are super interesting. There's a company called Yoko, which is a payment sort of company for um, SMEs, uh, sort of acquiring terminal for SMEs across the country. Uh, there's a company there called Lula Land, which is a, well, now called Lula, which is a um, sort of a new bank and SME sort of credit provider. Uh, for small businesses across the continent. So I think one of the interesting things for me about South Africa is that there is, you know, the tale of two South Africans and th this ability to innovate for one part of the country while actually carrying the other part along and actually making things sort of uh, much faster. And I think one point to actually talk about here is if we talk about a convergence point, which I think is a really important thing if you think of the continent, if we talk about a convergence point of, you know, why is fintech important in Africa now? Why is this a good time? We always ask our founders this when we do investments, which is, why now? Why not five years ago? Why not 10 years ago? There's like maybe sort of, you know, three main things that I can think of. The first thing is digitization. So digitization is on the rise, right? Both on sort of like the device side and the access side. So a lot of Africans are getting access to smartphones for the very first time. A lot of Africans are in their second or third smartphones now. And so they know how to access the internet. Data costs have been going down around 10% per annum for the last five years. So access and accessibility is increasing. And what that means is that people are gonna to expect to do a lot more with their mobile phone, right? The second thing is a lack of service from incumbents. So the credit penetration in Nigeria, formal credit penetration in Nigeria, is less than 5%. And by credit penetration, you mean precisely what? I mean, formal credit penetration, i.e. there's an institution that gives you credit in some form. Where you can borrow money. Where you can borrow money. Because as, as, as Odin was saying about Nigeria, it doesn't really work on a credit basis. No, and, and, the, and the credit that exists there is informal. It's you borrow money from sort of a local community, from somebody down the road. So a little bit like China was, there weren't any banks, because in, in China's case, the Cultural Revolution, all that kind of stuff. So it kind of had to grow up into fintech because there was no consumer lending in the first place. Exactly, right? And, and so if you think of that for... You know, say like Nigeria, for example, you've got, I think, 60 million debit cards or something like that. You've got less than half a million credit cards 
you know, for example, right? So you've got this sort of like prime opportunity for the incumbents have not been able to like provide the right services or maybe if you think of mortgages uh, in a place like sort of Kenya, Nigeria, those things are sort of not very, very common. So that's the second point, lack of insurance penetration. And the third thing I think is what I call the fintech readiness. So of course the fintech readiness of a market is everything from sort of what's the regulatory landscape in that market, you know, are there existing payment rails, APIs for people to start to build new services on top of that? Are there enough sort of, is there enough talent in the country? To, uh, to actually develop these products and these companies. And when you look across the continent with each of those things, the sort of fintech readiness, the lack of service from income base, digitization, they're all at different and varying levels. And that's part of why I think sort of investing in Africa or being a fintech in Africa is a very complex thing and something that you have to take a very local approach to. Okay, so that's very interesting and, and very clear about where it's all going in the future. And the fractal complexity of the whole thing uh, and um, hearing you it's got the dilemma uh, in a sense that it always had of, of kind of economic globalization and, and, and a tech world where google's everywhere and information flows very rapidly and you can find out all this stuff so there's this kind of convergence thing going on yet at the same time a desire to retain some local identity that people are something more than just homo economicus consumers producers around the world all indistinguishable so there's the, there's the kind of the convergence as well as the culture and culture gets uh, glossed over uh, very rapidly of course in an economic driven world anyway before we wrap up the show i'd like to thank all your listeners out there a special shout out this week to any listeners in africa and my brand partners for the podcast smart is transforming pensions and retirement worldwide their leading-edge retirement tech platform propelled them to success in the UK. Now they're operating on four continents and working with partners like Zurich and JP Morgan. Find out more at www.smart.co. The enlistedboard.com, your guide to entrepreneurial governance and how you can start making your board an engine of growth today. Okay, so um, that's been a fascinating coverage, Benga, as we were discussing before we started. Uh, on such a vast topic like this, we can only get a little bit of a, a taste for what's going on, um, but I certainly know a lot more than I knew before. It's very nice, given, as I say, the bizarre focuses elsewhere to be talking about the 21st century in, in Africa. The 19th century is a long, long time ago. <laughs> uh, so in terms of shout-outs at the end, QED is a, is a great global firm. We had Yusuf Osdalga on the show before. If any listeners out there thinks, hey, yes, I think there's a lot going on in Africa. I don't have any exposure to that. I'd quite like some VC stuff. Benga seems to know what he's doing. How do listeners out there invest either in QED or the firstly, or secondly, are there any sort of funds which are the QED slash Africa Fund, or was that part of the overall thing? So, little commercial shout out. Yeah, so I was hired nine months ago uh, uh, to lead the African charge for QED. So far, we've actually made two investments. One is an exciting payment company in Nigeria called uh, TMAPT, which is kind of like a square of Nigeria, helping merchants to process credit. And the other one is a company uh, uh, called Flapcap out of Egypt, who's actually building. Uh, a revenue-based finance company for the Middle East and North Africa. So we're off to a good start. We've invested in two of the markets already. We're very excited to talk to founders and invest in sort of a lot of the kind of companies that we've invested in elsewhere, but also like companies that are very local to Africa. So feel free to reach out to Pygmy on LinkedIn to add me if you have an interest in fintech company. We always love to, to talk to fintechs. QED likes to pride itself, and I think we are the best fintech advice founders can find anywhere. And so even if we end up uh, sort of not investing in you, I think Yusuf mentioned this the time he was on the show, would love to like, you know, um, help founders build companies. So that's it. And in terms of like an Africa fund, we don't, QD operates one global fund. And so we invest out of one global bucket, whether it's in India, Indonesia, the US, UK, Bulgaria, Dublin, or, or Nigeria. 
And so we'll be interested also to start to speak to local sort of LPs in Africa. I think that QED is a great vehicle to help to kind of increase access and actually make the lives of you know, millions of Africans better through digital financial services and through the companies that we invest in. And so you know, we would be very happy to speak to LPs as well as we kind of just start out this journey. But um, very excited to be here, very excited for QED to be investing on the continent and Yep, this is the beginning. Uh, uh, this is the beginning for us. Excellent. Well, that's been a very clear, quick tour d'horizon. We've covered a vast continent. There's all sorts of complexities going on. I, I love some of the takeaways, such as that sort of Morocco is more comparable to Kenya and all the, all these kind of things that you would never guess before. And so, on my behalf, and also on behalf of our listeners, I thank you for that very clear exposition, and I wish you and QED every success in the future, globally as well as in Africa. Thank you, Mike. It's great to be here. Thanks for listening. If you are in need of a non-executive or advisory director with deep expertise, experience and contacts in the worlds of both traditional FS and fintech, or unique insight into how to make your board an engine of growth today, contact me at mike at mikeballiman.com. If you just need one-off advice in these areas via clarity.fm slash mikeballiman. We could Watching the firelight dance, watching the firelight dance. We could walk in the mountains before dawn. Watching a happy moon ride, watching a happy moon ride. Watch the fire light dance with me, 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 watch the fire light dance with me,